Mark chapter 8. We have been doing a survey. When I'm filling in like this, we've been doing a survey of the book of Mark. And so it's not a verse-by-verse study. We just kind of pick a chapter uh, for each message and then go through it and kind of see what God has for us in that chapter. And that's what we're doing this morning. Now, let me remind you, as we started this many, many months ago now, we talked about the fact that the book of Mark really is focused on the work of Jesus Christ while he was here on earth. And this account that Mark gives us goes from event to event as Jesus Christ did his work. Uh, true to the introduction, as we talked about many uh, weeks ago, uh, the study of the life of Christ in the book of Mark is a study of Jesus Christ's activity. He goes from event to event to event. And it's Mark's belief, I truly believe, it's Mark's belief that if we see Jesus Christ at work, we're going to be convinced that he truly is the Son of God. Just watch what he does. Watch how he operates, and you'll know for sure that that's who he is. That is one of Mark's main goals in writing the book that he wrote, the account of the gospel that he wrote. Uh, the picture of Jesus Christ that Mark wants to give us is a picture of Jesus Christ as a servant. Jesus Christ serving those that he came to love and those that he came to redeem. So as we go through this book, and I think you've already seen it if you've been with us through the uh, first part of this study, Jesus Christ has cast out demons. Jesus Christ has healed a leper. Jesus Christ has restored a man's health. He's brought a little girl back to life. And as we watch him perform these various acts, as Mark writes these things down, it's almost like you can hear Mark in the background saying, do you see who he is? Can you see him? Do you see what he's doing? Don't you understand? Just watch him work and you'll know for sure that this is the Messiah. Don't you understand? This is God's son who's come to save our people from their sin. That is what Mark's message behind all of this is, I truly believe. Now, in Mark chapter 8, uh, we take a little bit of a turn. Because in Mark chapter 8, the activity stops for a minute. There's no activity right now. Uh, in fact, the passage we're looking at this morning, there are no miracles performed. In this chapter, it's just Jesus Christ and his disciples conversing with one another. And for the first time since we began this study in the book of Mark, there are no throngs of people around. Nobody is uh, healing, seeking healing for themselves or for somebody else. It's just the Lord and his disciples by themselves uh, ministering as Jesus Christ ministers to them. And even in this picture, as I say, Jesus Christ is still ministering. Jesus Christ was always ministering to somebody around him. He wants his disciples to understand what's going to happen uh, around them and what's going to happen in the future as his ministry progresses. And so he wants to set the tone of his ministry that they're going to carry on once he is no longer on this earth. So as he was so masterful in doing, the Lord Jesus Christ begins his discussion with his disciples with a question. And once that question is answered, he begins to let the disciples in on the sum of, of, of the events that are going to happen uh, in the very near future as things progress. And he's also going to lay out for them the requirements that they will have to fulfill if they truly want to be his disciple. So here's the question this morning that we're going to seek to answer as we go through this study. Uh, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is that your goal this morning? Do you really want to serve him and have him work through you the way he worked through his disciples? If you do, that's what the passage we're looking at this morning is all about. Because in order to be a disciple, we've got to know who it is we serve. And we've also got to know what is required of us if we truly want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what you're going to find this morning in this passage, Jesus Christ makes all those things very, very clear. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again this morning for this time in your house. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity again to gather with your people. And, Father, I thank you again for the opportunity to open your word and have you teach us this morning, Father, from the book that you've given to us. Lord, help us to separate from our minds anything that might distract us this morning. I pray the word of God might be clear and, and direct and powerful and accurate. Father, help me not to get in the way of what you want to do here this morning. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I know you're probably tired of hearing this, but I'm going to keep saying this because it is so important, especially in this day of easy believism uh, with the church. Christians wanted just to kind of uh, do the very minimum. Uh, I can't say this too much. A person can be a Christian and not be a disciple. A person can be a Christian and not be a disciple. It's possible to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and never do anything after that for the cause of Christ. I'm afraid we live in a day and age here where many Christians uh, are really believers all over the world, uh, who maybe some who even attend this church, who get saved only for fire insurance. (laughs) They just want to make sure they miss hell. That's all they're concerned about. That's their only purpose for trusting Christ. And they'll follow Jesus Christ if it's not too inconvenient, if there's some gain in it, if it doesn't get in the way of the rest that they want to do, of the rest of what they want to do. Now, why is that? How is it that a person can accept the greatest gift ever given and then feel no obligation whatsoever to follow the one who provided that gift for them? Well, I think we're going to find this morning the reason for that as we progress through what Jesus Christ talks to his disciples about. Jesus Christ will never ask us to do a work unless we know the requirements. Jesus Christ has no interest whatsoever in surprising you, uh, dumping something on you that you weren't expecting. And so once he gives you these requirements, then he simply says to you, you have a choice. You can choose to live as just a Christian, a fire insurance, and you'll make it to heaven just fine. But if you want to fulfill your full purpose as a believer in Jesus Christ, there's some requirements you must meet, and you have the choice whether or not you want to meet those requirements. And so I'm going to ask you again this question. I want, you to, I want it to float in your mind the entire time we're talking this morning. Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is that your desire this morning? If you do, then watch what Jesus Christ says this morning. Learn from what he, how he presents it and what he involves himself in, and you will do a work for God just like God wants you to. And so I'll tell you, folks, I realize this is a Sunday school hour. Uh, There aren't a lot of folks that come to this time. I get that. This is not a devotional this morning. This is a serious topic we're talking about. This is the fulfillment of the purpose for your Christian life while you're here on this earth. That's what we're talking about this morning. The expectations that are there for a person who wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I don't believe there's anything more important for us to hear. Now, we're going to divide our passage this morning into three parts. And I want you to look, first of all, at what we're going to call the declaration. The declaration. Look at verse 27, if you would. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? There's the question. Disciples, who do men say that I am? Now, it's a general question. Who does the public at large think that I am? Now, of course, just with, with every, as with every question Jesus Christ asked, he already knew the answer to that. But the question is intended to lead the disciples into a realization. Now, before we go any farther into what Jesus Christ has asked them, I want to ask you a question. Who do people say that you are? Who do people say that you are? I realize we're not to be overly concerned with how people think about us or what people think of us. In many cases, uh, their opinion really doesn't matter. But at the same time, in some respects, we need to consider what people are thinking of us. And so there's some value, I believe, in assessing the kind of impact we're having on the people around us. What kind of impression are you leaving on the people that you rub shoulders with every day? When they think of you, what's the first thought that comes to their mind? Uh, People should not see us. You're aware of that, right? They should see Jesus Christ in us. That's been our entire focus both last year and this year as well, being the presence of Jesus Christ to our world. People should not be impressed with me, and it should not be my goal to have people be impressed with me. I should not be doing things specifically for the purpose to make a name for myself or to get people to notice me in some way. 
Instead, when I live my life among people around me, they ought to be impressed with the Savior who lives inside me. That's what ought to catch their attention. We've mentioned this in the past, Acts eleven twenty nine. The Bible tells us the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, I realize when they first labeled the believers Christians, it was a term of derision. But at the same time, that word Christian means Christ one. They said these people are trying to be little Jesus Christ's. They're Christ ones. When the public saw the disciples, when they watched their mannerisms and heard their speech and heard their message, it all reminded them of Jesus Christ. And so they called them Christ ones, Christians. What did the people say about them? They said they looked like Jesus Christ. Now, what is true of most people, whether we like it or not, I know this is not going to be an easy thing to take uh, on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to tell you, the older you get, the more you start to look like your parents. I'm sorry about that, but that is just the truth. <laughs> the older you get, uh, the more you start to look and resemble your parents. That might scare you a little bit. Um, it shouldn't, but maybe it does. But in reality, it doesn't need to be a bad thing. Thing. I'd leave that up to you to decide whether or not that's a bad thing. But either way, sooner or later, in some way or another, uh, as you get older, you begin to sound more like your parents. Your behavior begins to act seem more like your parents. Even your mannerisms begin to resemble those of your parents. I catch myself all the time doing things or saying things, and I say, man, my dad would have done that. <laughs> that's how he would have sounded. I catch myself doing that more often as I go along. In many cases, if you saw your mom and dad together, uh, they would, rather if they saw you and your parents together, they would see the resemblance in you to your parents. Now, you may not like that thought when it comes to your parents. That should be something you strive for in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You ought to strive to resemble Jesus Christ. People should look at you and know without a doubt who you belong to. It ought to be an automatic thing. They ought to know who you're related to. They should see your father in you. And if they don't, there's something wrong with the way we're living. They need to see Jesus Christ in our lives. If I take on the name Christian, Christ one, little Christ, I better remind people of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, again, there's a problem. I should resemble him in all that I say and all that I do. So Jesus Christ asked them in verse 27, who do men say that I am? Look at the answer in verse 28. And they answered John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say, and others, one of the prophets. Who do people say that I am? Uh, in spite of the miracles Jesus Christ was doing, in spite of the doctrine that he was preaching, in spite of the obvious authority that he had and demonstrated, the people were still missing who he was. They weren't saying he was the Messiah. They're saying he's John the Baptist, or he's Elijah, or he's one of the prophets. That's who they thought he was. Uh, people are still are missing who Jesus Christ was. Uh, now, from that vantage point, it's kind of amazing. How could they miss seeing who Jesus Christ was? But then I realized, as I look at my world, things haven't changed a whole lot. Uh, in your world out there, those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, they're still missing who Jesus Christ is. They still aren't catching it. People who live around you and work around you can see the obvious difference in your life. They know you live by a different set of guidelines. They are clearly aware that your language is different and what you talk about is different and your entertainment is different and your involvements are different. They see your joy. They see your contentment. They see a moral, clean life. And yet you tell them the reason for all of that and it just passes right by them. They think you just made some reformation. You got involved in some kick for a while. They miss the impact of what you're saying. The Bible tells us that the devil has blinded the minds of those who don't know the Lord. He's blinded their eyes. It takes the supernatural, supernatural intervention of the Spirit of God to draw people to Jesus Christ. 
He's got to involve himself in that. Uh, they'll never see it on their own. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, as you live your life out before them, they see your life as foolishness. You're crazy if you're living that way. Why invest yourself in some dead person who went to the grave and never came back? Why would you do that? That's their thought. Paul says this in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27. He says, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. You see, people aren't going to see who Jesus Christ is until they let go of their own ideas and their own philosophies and listen with their hearts to the claims of Jesus Christ. That's how you got saved. You got saved the day that you put all your own ideas aside, all your conceptions about Jesus Christ and religion and all the rest, set all that aside and just heard the message of the gospel. And when you did that, you realized there's something to it. And that's what's got to happen in the life of every person. They'll never know who Jesus Christ is until they set all that stuff aside and just hear the claims and look at the life of Jesus Christ and watch those around them that live for Jesus Christ. Then they'll see who he is. So they're not going to see him until that happens. What we do need to see here, however, in the answer they give in verse 28, is they did have a high regard for Jesus Christ. Uh, they thought he was John the Baptist, had great respect for John the Baptist. Elijah, one of their greatest prophets, or one of the other prophets, they had a high opinion of him. They classified him with some great people. They had been taught, however, that the Messiah would come in a much different way. They were under the, under the impression uh, that this prince was going to come in power. He was going to take over the world system. He would release them from the bondage of the Roman government. That's what they thought. And because of the faulty teaching of the priests and the rulers, the people missed who Jesus Christ was. He didn't come the way they expected him to. But then Jesus asked another question. Look at verse 29. And he saith unto them, watching now, but whom say ye that I am? Who do you think I am? Who do you think? I know what everybody else is saying. I know what their opinion is. Here's my question, disciples. Who do you think I am? Talk about being put on the spot. And, of course, as usual, the deafening silence is broken up by Peter. He steps up and declares who Jesus Christ really is. Look at verse 30, or verse 29, rather. Uh, but ye, whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. Uh, as a person draws closer to the Lord, they are only more and more convinced that he is who he says he is. Uh, if you can think back to the time that you were saved and what you knew about Jesus Christ then, and as you've lived your life for him, as you think about what you know about Jesus Christ now, there should be a vast difference. I'm sure there is. As you draw closer to him, you're more and more convinced that he is exactly who he says he is. And it demonstrates that to you every day in how he operates in your life. Uh, the fact of who Jesus Christ is gets us started on the Christian life, but it's that daily experience of being with him and walking with him and watching him. That is what convinces you that he is the Christ. It's then that there's no doubt in your mind about who he really is. So, fortunately, the disciples here, or at least Peter, is clear about who Jesus Christ is. No question in their minds regarding that. And because that's settled, because the declaration has been made that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, he begins to reveal a little bit more to them about his plan for them. And that brings us to the second point in our message this morning, the detour. First, we have the declaration, Jesus Christ declares who he is. And next, we have the detour. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. As Paul Harvey used to say, there's the rest of the story. Things have been very exciting for these disciples. Uh, people are being healed and miracles are being done. At this point, there's no real resistance to the Lord's ministry. He's kind of doing whatever he wants to do. And then he says, disciples, I want to clue you in about something. That's all going to change. There's going to be a huge change that's going to come. He lets them know that soon the people are going to begin to turn against him. They're going to capture him and try him. And he tells them there, they're going to put me to death. And then he says, after my death, I'm going to come back from the dead. But Peter, of course, again, being Peter, missed the entire talk about the resurrection. He missed the entire thought that Jesus Christ was going to die but come back. All he heard was that people are going to turn against Jesus Christ. All he heard is they're going to put him to death. And that's all he could take. And because, again, Peter was who he is, he responds in verse 32. Look at the verse. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him, look at now, and began to rebuke him. Peter chose to rebuke Jesus Christ. Now, folks, that is not a wise thing ever to do. You should never, ever think about rebuking Jesus Christ. Peter says to the creator of the universe, I think you're a little mixed up here. I don't think you got the clear message. I think maybe you got, you got your lines twisted a bit. Things can't happen like you say they're going to. It just can't be that way. Now, that is not a wise choice to make when you talk to Jesus Christ. But here's the real question. Why would Peter do that? I mean, again, Peter confesses, you're the Christ, so he knows who Jesus Christ is. Why would he then say, nah, it's not going to happen that way. You're mixed up, Lord. you got a wrong message here. Why would he do that? I know Peter was impulsive. I know Peter said some stupid things. But what in the world was in Peter's mind that motivated the outburst of verse 32? Well, fortunately, Scripture gives us that answer in verse 33. Look at verse 33. But when he had turned about, this is speaking of Jesus now, and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Can I tell you what Jesus Christ says there in simple words? Peter, your priorities are all messed up. (laughs) You are focused on the wrong things. You've made what is important not important, and you've made what is not important the most important thing. What was Peter focused on? Peter was focused on being a disciple. And Peter was focused on the status that came with that. He was focused on being around when those miracles were taking place. He enjoyed the notoriety, the fame that came with being with that one who was doing all these great things. He liked the status. Peter was an ordinary fisherman. And suddenly he's hanging around with somebody who's raising people from the dead. Peter didn't want to lose that connection. He didn't want to lose that fame that came with that. And now he hears Jesus Christ say, "Uh, they're going to kill me. And because of that, Peter sees himself going back to just being a fisherman again, just an ordinary guy. There's no more spotlight. There's no more fame, no more notoriety. Uh, Peter was very young in his Christian walk. In fact, Peter really, I mean, in the classic sense, wasn't even a Christian. But in, at this point in his life, Peter had just begun to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he was serving Jesus Christ at that moment for the sole purpose of seeing what he could get out of it. What benefit was there to him to serve Jesus Christ? That's why he was there. And I'm afraid there are many, many people who serve Jesus Christ for the same reason. Uh, Peter was self-focused, not God-focused. And Jesus Christ says to him, you're not savoring the things of God. You're savoring the things of men. The things of men are most important to you. 
And again, there are many people in our world today who call themselves Christians for the sole reason of seeing what they can gain from it, rather than because they love Jesus Christ. They call themselves Christians because it helps business. They call themselves Christians because it helps people, certain people to like them. Uh, it makes them part of a group, and they like being part of the group. There are, they are Christians because of what it provides to them, not because of any real dedication to the Lord and to his work. Now, they're still saved. They're just saved for the wrong reason. Uh, they still trusted Jesus Christ. They're still believing on him for salvation. They're just not trusting him and walking with him for the right reason. There's no real dedication to the Lord and to his work in their walk. And, of course, someday that's going to be revealed and the truth is going to be made known. But I don't want to miss what Peter says here because he does make a great declaration. He says, you're the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. But when he heard what was to come, his attitude changes and he detours away from that declaration. And in the process of that, folks, he does the unthinkable. He rebukes Jesus Christ. Have you ever done that? I've done that. I will confess that to you. There are times when God does something in my life and I will say to him, Lord, you must have messed up here. Something wrong here. I don't get what you're doing. Uh, this can't be the right path to take. I rebuke Jesus Christ. Maybe not as clearly as Peter does, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. And so Peter does the unthinkable. He rebukes the Son of God. And that detour that Peter makes brings us to our third point in this passage, the denial. The denial. The Lord sees Peter's attitude and realizes in that attitude there is something that needs to be addressed. And that is the heart of our lesson this morning. I want you to look at verse 34, if you would. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. He calls the people together. He calls some of the disciples together and he begins to explain to them, here's what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Contrast that with where Peter was at this moment. Peter was a disciple to see what he could gain. That's why he was in, involved in the whole process. That's why he rebuked the Son of God. He was in the discipleship to see what he could gain. The Lord's focus, as he presents it in verses 34 and 35, is not what on a person can gain, but rather on what a person is willing to give up. That's the difference. Jesus Christ explains that the foundation of discipleship is not based on gain. Rather, it is based on cost. When the people thought about the Messiah, they thought about all the glory that was going to come to them because he was going to rescue them from all that was going on around them. Jesus Christ presents the Messiah as somebody who's going to experience suffering and cause suffering for those who would choose to follow him. And so he says to them, do you want to be my disciple? Take up your cross and not your crown. Leave the crown alone for now. That comes later. Right now, take up your cross. And that cross is a picture of death. That cross is a hangman's news. That cross is the electric chair. Uh, that's what the, Jesus Christ is talking about there. The message is too clear to miss. If I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I must die to self. I must die to self. If I want to be a disciple, I must not expect glory. If I want to be a disciple, I must expect suffering. Jesus Christ said it to the disciples that day. He says it to you and I today. Do you want to be my disciple? Then follow me. Well, Lord, where are we going? Well, Lord, uh, well, uh, disciple, I'm going to Golgotha. 
and they're going to crucify me and they're going to put my flesh to death. Do you want to be my disciple? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me to the cross. Follow me to death to self. Follow me to death to this flesh. There is a basic law of discipleship that is simply unchangeable. We can try all we want to to talk our way through this, but it's not going to change. We cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ unless we die to self. Die to self. And we may ask ourselves, why does it have to be that way? Well, there are two reasons for that. First of all, if you don't die to self, this flesh is going to interfere with your work for Jesus Christ. Because what you are aware of, I'm sure, uh, you'll need to be saved a day or two to figure this out. This flesh is not God-centered. <laughs> this flesh is self-centered. This flesh wants what the flesh wants and what the self wants, not what God wants. The desires of the flesh are always going to pull you away from what God wants. We see that with Peter. Peter, who says, you are the Christ, in the next breath says, Lord, this can't be the way it's going to be. The flesh got in the way because Peter was focused on fulfilling the desires of that flesh. The desires desires of the flesh are sinful, and sin can't reign in the heart of a disciple. So unless I am willing to put this flesh to death, it will always be pulling me away from where God wants me to be and where I want to go. And the end result will be it will take me on the same detour that Peter took. Lord, it can't be this way. It's got to be different. Number two, uh, we have to put this flesh to death because the flesh does not want to endure suffering. Your flesh hates that idea. Even as I presented to you this morning, you're saying that flesh is saying to you, let's not do this. Let's do something else. Your flesh is involved in self-preservation. That is the primary goal of your flesh to preserve itself. This flesh is opposed to suffering what it must suffer in denial of itself. So unless we die to self, the flesh will experience that pain and that denial and it'll keep refocusing itself on self-preservation. And the only way to deal with that is to kill that flesh. You cannot accommodate that flesh and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sooner or later, that flesh is going to pull you away. It's just how it works. So we have to kill that flesh. I'm going to have you turn to a very familiar verse. Go to the book of Romans, if you would. And look at verse, uh, chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. We've looked at this verse many, many times. I'm hoping if you've not yet underlined or circled this verse, you'll do it this morning. You want a key to the Christian life? We're going to talk about this more in a few weeks uh, at our 1030 message. Uh, Look at verse 11 of chapter 6, and you'll see the key to your Christian life. Paul says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There a decision made there that says, I am no longer going to accommodate this flesh. This flesh is dead to me. Has no, I have no desire for the impact of the flesh whatsoever. So we live as though this flesh has no say in the choices that we make. It has no say in the path that we pursue. We simply set that flesh aside and don't listen to anything it has to say. We do not allow the desires of the flesh to become important. When we hear the flesh speak, it's like noise, and we deny it immediately so the spirit can have full control. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. He says, but I keep my bo- I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, some have taken that verse to mean that we're supposed to uh, beat our bodies into subjection, into submission, so they don't have control over us anymore. And so you'll have those in third world countries who are flogging themselves, going up and down the street, trying to fulfill what Paul says there in First Corinthians chapter nine. 
That's not at all what Paul is talking about. When Paul talks about putting his body under subjection, what he is saying is, I need to take control of the desires of this flesh so they no longer are a determining force in any decision that I make. Because Paul is aware if the flesh takes control, he could lose his ministry and he could lose his fellowship with the Lord and he could become of no use to God whatsoever. Read Romans 7 sometimes, and Paul will show you that battle that goes on between that flesh and the spirit. And Paul says, I simply have to die to this flesh in order to make my life work for Jesus Christ. And so when Paul would have a desire of the flesh arise, he would recognize that thing for what it was and refuse to respond to it. You know what our problem is, folks? We listen to the flesh too much. That flesh speaks and we give it an ear just for a second just to hear what it has to say. And when we do that, we allow its input, we allow its influence, and we've allowed ourselves a possibility of going in the wrong direction. What Paul says is, don't even listen to it. As soon as that flesh speaks, set it aside. That is the only way to deal with the flesh. Any other way is going to introduce the possibility of going the wrong direction. If we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ, please hear me. There is simply no way for the flesh to be in charge. When Jesus Christ talks about the cost of being disciple, it is not an option. There is no other way to pay the price of discipleship except to deny that flesh. Otherwise, our ministry and our testimony are in jeopardy. Look at verse 35 again. He says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. This is a foundational principle for the Christian life, a foundational principle if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In order for us to live the Christian life the way God wants us to, in order for us to be disciples, whatever God has given to us, if we want to keep it, we must be willing to give it away. Whatever God has given to you, you must be willing to give it away, to surrender it, if God asked you to do that. That is the principle that every disciple, true disciple, must live by. I can't hold on to anything for myself and expect to be used as a disciple. Everything that I have must be available to, for God to use in the work of Jesus Christ. And if I hold anything back, it may be useful to me, but I have declared that thing of no use to God whatsoever. If you want to lose your life, try to save it. If you want to save your life, give it to God for his use. Nothing that I use for myself, nothing that I do for my own glory is going to have any lasting value. The only things that last are those things that I give to the Lord for his use. Now, I guarantee you, because I went through this message myself, I guarantee you, as I say that, you're saying to yourself somewhere in there, is there any way out of this? (laughs) Can I be a disciple and not follow that principle? Is there any way at all for me to uh, follow Jesus Christ, but not have to give up everything that I have? Well, I think Jesus Christ, obviously, he knew exactly how we are. He knew how we think, and therefore, he answered that question for us. We say that's a tough principle to live by. Look at what Jesus Christ says in verse 36. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know what Jesus Christ is saying there? Jesus Christ is saying there, your salvation is built on that principle. Your salvation is built upon the fact that you gain salvation by losing. I gain Jesus Christ when I turn my back on the world and turn my back on the flesh and turn my back on all that attempted to offer me. If a person is focused on gaining what the world system provides, that person is going to lose their soul because the world cannot save your soul. 
It may save some stuff here. It's not going to save anything past the grave. Salvation comes when I get to the point where I say that nothing else matters except knowing Jesus Christ. When I came to Jesus Christ, I came empty handed. I could not bring anything to him in order to be saved. And a person will never be saved until they let go of everything else and simply trust Jesus Christ. You've heard the little saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that's salvation. And discipleship is the same way. The only way to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to take everything that I have and lay it at the disciples' feet. And anything I won't give him will be a loss to me. The Lord taught this same principle over there in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Flip over there. Just go over one book. I'll go to Matthew chapter 6 and look at verse 19. This is the instruction of Jesus Christ as well. And it's all about the same principle, this principle of discipleship and giving up what you don't want to lose. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Here's what Jesus Christ says. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Now, what you have in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 is God's investment program. God's investment program. You probably get those letters. You probably get those calls from all these financial planners, all these financial institutions who want to convince you to give your money to them to invest. Well, God is doing the same thing in Matthew 6, verse 19. And his plan is the more you lay up in heaven, the more your investment grows. And what I choose not to invest, I lose and it doesn't count for anything. What I choose not to invest in God's investment program, uh, those things that I have been given, are not profitable at all for the work of the Lord, and therefore not profitable when I get to heaven. Investment of our resources, whatever they might be, into the Lord's work reaps eternal dividends. And those things simply cannot go unwasted. And things that I choose not to invest, those are the things that I waste. I may enjoy them here. I may use them here to meet some earthly need. I may have some fun with those things. But in terms of my impact for him, in terms of my impact for eternity, they count for nothing. Look at verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If I choose not to invest in the Lord's work, if I am ashamed to give it all to him, if I refuse to deny myself and take up my cross and follow, the day is going to come when Jesus Christ is going to be ashamed of me. I'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ when all those works that I've accumulated are burned up and the Lord will be ashamed of me. I gave you all these resources. I gave you all these opportunities and you held them selfishly for yourself. To use for your own gain and your own purpose. And as a result, you have nothing at all to show for all that I gave you. What a horrible time that will be. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, the one who is the source for all that we have, ashamed because we held on to it instead of releasing it to him for his service. What do you have this morning that the Lord can use? Finances? If you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. Talents? If you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. Abilities, if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. Gifts, if you want to keep it, 
you've got to give it away. A home to entertain in, if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. A car to transport people to church in, if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. A phone to contact people with, if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. Children, if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. When our children were born, Sandy and I dedicated both of them to the Lord's work. Now, from a human point of view, that is a very scary thing to do because it meant that we were surrendering control of them and that God could do whatever he wanted to do with them, whatever that meant. But they weren't our kids, you see. They were God's kids. He gave them to us. As Hannah talked about in First Samuel, uh, God loaned those children to us. They were never ours. If you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. If you, got to keep, if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. So much more we can say about this. And there are many examples in Scripture I could give you uh, of that principle. But here's the bottom line that the Lord has given us. He has provided so much to us to use in serving him. He has given so much to us in leading others to Jesus Christ. And here's the point, folks. We either choose to surrender it to him or we hold on to it for ourselves. That's the only choice there is. I either choose to keep it or I choose to give it away. So, in closing, I ask you the question again. Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is that your desire this morning? If that's the case, then assess your life. And whatever God has given to you, give it back to him for his use. Say, Lord, it's all yours. Everything. Take it all, because it's all yours. And you will, if you will do that, you will reap eternal benefits and eternal rewards from what God has given to you. Uh, Jim Elliott, you remember that you know the name well, I'm sure. He was a missionary to the Aka Indians. He gave his life on the missionary field to get the gospel to those people. And here's the famous quote that Jim Elliott spoke. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Jim Elliott gave his life for the Aka Indians. And today, scores of them have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. The very ones who killed them, him, are serving the Lord today. You see, Jim Elliott gave his life. He didn't lose his life. At the judgment seat of Christ, no shame directed at Jim Elliott. He knew and practiced the principle, if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. How about you? How about you? Can you say today that that is the guiding principle of your life? I will say to you, believer, that is the only way to be a disciple of Jesus Christ.